Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Nick Clayson. I'm the pastor of student ministries here. And uh, have you ever said yes to something that you shouldn't have? Uh, like, uh, <laughs> about a week ago, I was sitting across the table from Pastor Brad, and he looked at me and he said, Hey, man, is there uh, any way you could preach for me this Sunday? And, uh, you know, I got a retreat coming up next weekend. I got a lot of stuff going on for that. And uh, he said, but you know what? I, I won't be there um, to sit and watch and critique you. And I said, yeah, sure. What passage? And so um, here I am up here. And uh, I said, anything you need, man, anytime, just let me know. And so the reason I was a little late getting in this morning is because uh, I was in the back doing his laundry. So he may have gone a little too far with that. But nonetheless, here I am. So glad to be with you this morning. Um, People say yes to dumb things all the time. I'm obviously uh, no exception to that rule. In fact, I have a few pictures I'd like to show you of people who've said yes to things that they probably shouldn't have. So here's the first one. Uh, look at this guy in his all-out Green Bay Packer gear. He looks a little frightened because if you look at the scoreboard, it's actually a San Diego Chargers and Washington Redskins game. So not sure if he lost a bet or what the deal was with that, but here he is amongst a sea of fans. Here's another one. Um, I'm just going to let this one speak for itself. Like, people say yes to dumb things all the time. The guy on the end must have, like, drawn the short straw or something. And then here's the last one. Uh, hey, man, my bungee cord broke. Do you mind being it for me? And so there's a guy holding on to some stuff in the back of a truck. So, again, people do things that they shouldn't do all the time, say yes to things that they shouldn't say yes to all the time. In fact, that is exactly true with what happens with uh, the church in our passage that we're going to be reading this morning. As we continue on, letter four of Dear Church, uh, we're going to be looking at the letter to the church in Thyatira. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18, and then we're going to go all the way down through verse 29. As you're turning there, I want to let you in on a little bit of the context uh, with this letter. The first thing that you may note about this letter is this is actually the longest of the seven letters written. What's curious, though, is that the city of Thyatira is very insignificant and inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. So, most inconsequential town, longest letter, okay? And you'll, you'll see why in just a minute, but the reality is this, is that the city of Thyatira has been pretty insignificant and pretty inconsequential for a long time. Um, and right around the time the letter was written, they had just experienced a little blip, a little boom of economic success. Uh, and so they discovered some minerals and some things in their area that could cause them to come together and make this dye for clothing and, and stuff like that. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, Lydia, who's from Thyatira, is called the Purple Woman because of that, because she was a producer of dye. And so that's what's going on here in the church in Thyatira. Small, insignificant, all those kinds of things, but just a small little increase, all right, in this economic boom. And that's the context, that's the setting that we're going to jump in. So let's go ahead, let's read this together. Together, starting um, chapter 2, verse 18, down through 29, says this. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire and whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. 
She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. And those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from their evil deeds. I'll strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I'll give to you, each of you, whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who've not followed this false teaching. Deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan, actually, I'll, I'll ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority that I received from my Father, and I will also give them the, the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to what the Spirit uh, and understanding, what he is saying to the church. So, the first thing you may notice as we jump into that passage is the beginning description. So if you've been here the last several weeks and heard these messages, you know that the structure is similar, okay? You know that it starts with a description about God, a commendation for the church, and then he moves into complaining about them, which is just a great way to receive a letter, right? Like, hey, here's all the things I don't like about you. Um, but in this letter, we see a description of God that if you've read that, you probably, it's, you probably didn't describe him that way this week, okay? And so uh, verse 19, he says, um, I'm sorry, verse 18, the Son of God whose eyes are like flames of fire and whose feet are like polished bronze. You read that and you're like, hmm, that's interesting. So for us, we started in Dear Church, uh, chapter 2 is where this series started. But if you were reading through the book of Revelation from the beginning, you'll notice that in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, it actually has a very similar construct. Here's what it says. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. What's curious, though, is that in the church in Thyatira, in chapter 1, there's one distinction. All right, so we see the, the eyes like fire and the polished bronze. And what that's supposed to do is that's supposed to stress the Lord's authority, his discipline and judgment, as well as his power of knowledge and his swiftness of judgment. But the small distinction is that in chapter 1, it says the Son of Man, with all these descriptions of the feet and the eyes. Chapter 2, the Son of God. So Son of Man is a little more relatable, like Son of Man, Jesus was man, walked among, amongst us, all those things. Son of God is like, hey, um, take me seriously. All right, and this description is supposed to describe in such a way that the church takes notice. All right, he's not messing around. He's got some stuff that he needs to talk about. And so that's the entire purpose of why that description was put out that way. So what is it that the Son of God is needing to administer punishment against? Like, what's this serious infraction that's causing him to describe himself in such a way that is almost scary to the church here in Thyatira? Well, if you have your Bibles, the answer's right here in verse 20 and 21. He says, I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. And she teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. So that's what's going on, is this lady, this Jezebel, is she's, she's teaching these people uh, false teaching. All right, and so the church of Thyatira, they had a compromise problem. 
They didn't have a love problem. They didn't have a faith problem. They didn't have a serving problem. They didn't actually have an endurance problem. In fact, if we were innocent bystanders looking at the church, what we would notice is like, man, that church looks pretty successful, does it not? And, and instead, uh, what we see is that inside of it, there is a compromising, a tolerance to sin that's taking place. And that's where the issue begins to take root. So from external appearances, they have all these things going for them, but they had compromised what they know to be true. And so my guess is, as often it does happen with compromise, is it didn't happen overnight, right? Like they didn't wake up and be like, you know what? I think today I'm going to indulge in all this immorality and false teaching. No, it's a slow over time. In fact, actually, I watched this video this week um, and I don't know, maybe you've seen or heard of this experiment before, but you have a, a frog, and you have a boiling pot of water. And so you take the frog, and you try to put him in the boiling pot of water, but what happens is um, he, he resists getting into it because it's hot and it's uncomfortable for him. But if you stick a frog in a room temperature pot of water and slowly turn it up, there you go, you'll notice that all of a sudden, once it starts to boil, once it starts to get to an uncomfortable, in fact, even dangerous temperature, the frog doesn't notice the difference because he's cold-blooded and he just continues to adapt to his surroundings. And so, like I said, I watched this video this week, and at the end, they showed this boiling pot of water and this frog floating in it. And I was absolutely horrified because I was like, man, that poor frog. And then at the end, they said no frogs were harmed in this. This was a uh, stunt frog. It was like a plastic frog. And I was like, how dare you trick me? Like, then I was mad that it wasn't real. But the reality is this. I think for some of us, we've gotten to a spot of tolerance in our lives. And maybe you look up and the waters around you are so hot, but you don't realize how you got there. And that's what's going on here in the church of Thyatira. So what caused them to get to this spot? What was it? What were the circumstances going on? Well, we actually see in the text, in verse 20, he blames that woman, Jezebel. All right, and you might be thinking, well, who in the world is Jezebel? I'm glad you asked. So Jezebel uh, was a, pro, uh, a callback, actually, um, to a queen that we find in 1 Kings chapter 16. She was married to King Ahab. And, and Jezebel was described as an evil, idolatrous, and impudent queen. And so her name is synonymous uh, today with someone who's shameless and who has no morals. Okay, in fact, the, the name Jezebel, Jezebel has been repurposed uh, and used for things like lingerie lines. And actually in World War II, there was a missile named after her. So it's not like, like something you want to be called, um, but that's what, he called, that's what they called her. And so the Jezebel of the Old Testament, very similar to the one we see here, um, used her position of power and influence uh, to influence other people into wickedness, okay? And so uh, this is not her real name. Her name isn't Jezebel. Like, it's, it's a, a different lady. He's just using it uh, to get the point across. It'd be like if, um, if you have a kid in your class who's really smart when you're in high school or something, or if you're in high school, um, they're really smart, and you call him an Einstein. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, they're not really Einstein. Like, that's a name of Albert Einstein, who's actually smart. But anyone who's smart, you're like, yeah, you're just an Einstein, right? Like, that's kind of what's going on here. However, Einstein is a compliment, and Jezebel is definitely not. And so uh, this lady, she, as the, the verse 20 puts it, she is leading servants astray. 
okay? And that's what's going on. She's leading them into it, and she's leading them astray, but not only astray, but she's leading them into compromising situations, situations where they need to tolerate the sin that's going on. So how was she leading astray? What actually was happening? There's two ways, two, two areas I want to focus on this morning uh, that she was doing it. The first one was this, uh, false teaching. Okay, uh, Jezebel, it says, verse 20, she teaches them. So she was teaching them to commit sexual sin, to eat food offered to idols. What she was actually evidently saying is that, listen, your freedom in Christ allows you the freedom to indulge in these things. And we know that's not true. We know that that is false teaching because our freedom in Christ would never give us the liberty to sin, okay? And so what you have to understand is that that's where she was leading them to. Now, many of us in here, as we think about how, okay, how in the world does this letter become applicable to me in my life? My guess is none of you woke up this morning just ridden with shame and guilt for how much indulgence you have in false teaching. That's just my guess, okay? But the reality is, it is more present than you might think. And so let me show you some ways uh, in which uh, we may succumb to the temptation of false teaching in 2018. And this is what happens. We bend our teaching to accommodate culture as opposed to viewing culture through the lens of truth. See, so what happens is some issue, some uh, ideal, something pops up in culture, and we, we don't want to be against it. We want to tolerate it. And so therefore, we try to bend our teaching to, to fit into it rather than viewing our, our culture through the lens of truth, which is God's word. And that's how false teaching can kind of manifest itself, okay? Because you understand the tension, right? You know that Scripture teaches an exclusive gospel. Jesus tells us, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Those are exclusive statements. There's not a lot of room for, uh, not a lot of margin for error in that, in how you understand it. But yet, we live in an inclusive culture. And so there's a rub that takes place. And how do you, like, do you just, are you an intolerant Christian, someone who doesn't accept people? But that's kind of the rub. And so how then do we um, become susceptible to it? What are ways that we may fall prey to and, and give in to the temptation of false teaching? There's two kind of basic ways I want to point that out. The first one is this, you're not discerning enough, okay? And so maybe what that means is an issue in culture pops up, and you don't know how to respond to it because you, just, you don't know the Bible as well as maybe you think you should or maybe you just don't know as well as, as you should. Um, maybe you need to start to try and find ways to renew your mind around the truth of what God's Word says. Um, we talk a lot about uh, heart and how our actions flow out of it and all those things. But there is a, a spot in church for head knowledge. And there is a spot in your life to learn more, to get to know more, to, to understand theology and the deep truths of it and what it means and all those things. And so if you're at a spot where you feel ignorant, then maybe you need to uh, turn back and, and renew your minds around those things uh, so that you can know and you can be a little more discerning. Okay, that's the first one. The second one I think is far greater of a challenge for us, and it's the fear of man, okay? If you've grown up in church any length of time, or if you've um, been coming here any length of time, the odds are you probably know the truth, right? You're probably not in that I'm not discerning enough category. You probably know what you should or shouldn't be doing. You probably know how to respond to culture based off of the truth from God's word. What's more likely probably going on in our hearts and minds as we succumb to false teaching is we have a fear of what our, our peers, our co-workers, our supervisors, our neighbors may think of us, may say about us, or how, how they will respond to us if we choose 
to stand for something we know is true, yet is unpopular in an ever-shifting culture. And I think that is more the, the tension and the fear that we have to embrace. And so, again, you may know what to be true, but it may be harder for you to actually stand up for what is actually true. And so what's going on here is Jezebel is leading them into these uh, spots of false teaching, okay? And so you hear false teaching, and you're probably not like, man, I I really got to deal with that. But as we kind of break it down a little bit, you may say, yeah, okay, I see how that pops up a little more. And so Jezebel was leading them into that spot. And so the first thing she was doing is false teaching. Well, what was she teaching that was false? Well, second thing is immorality. Like she was giving them permission to indulge in, to participate in, uh, and to be free in immorality. So, as I was saying earlier, in Thyatira, the economic state was not very good, but just kind of recently, it was kind of having a little uh, a little spark, if you will. And so, in order to practice, like, merchants and, and economics in Thyatira, um, the city created these little things called trade guilds, okay? And a trade guild was an organization or a group of organized people for potters, tanners, dyers, bronze workers, okay? So people who um, were selling things. And it was actually really difficult to be a merchant in Thyatira and not belong to a trade guild, okay? And so maybe you're thinking, that's not a big deal, like just join trade guilds. Well, check it out. Here's what was going on in those trade guilds, okay? In order to be in them, in an already challenging and economic climate where it wasn't very easy to thrive in this city. So the only way that you really could is to be part of this trade guild. In those, you would have to face pressures to participate in pagan and idolatrous feasts, okay? Furthermore, Alan Johnson, a commentator, puts it this way. Each guild has its own patron deity, feast, and seasonal festivities that included sexual revelries. So, this Jezebel lady was saying, hey, it's fine. Just go join a trade guild. Like, you got to do what you got to do, right? And so do you see the tension now? Like, you may know what's true, but in culture, this is what's normal. And not only this is what's normal and, like, people will laugh at you if you don't join it. Like, it's borderline impossible if you're not a part of these and you're living in the city of Thyatira. And so perhaps as you are at work, maybe there are things, maybe there are compromising situations that you've had to navigate how do I handle this? What takes place? Like, wh- what's going to go on if I say no to it? Will I get treated differently? Will my pay go down? Will I lose opportunities for promotion? Right? All kinds of different things. That's what's happening here in the city of Thyatira. So it's not just like, hey, here's some immorality. You should say no. It's like literally your career, your lifestyle, the way you provide for your family, it's sink or swim. Make a decision, okay? And that's what's going on. What's interesting is that all throughout Scripture— when it talks about temptation or when it talks about um, giving into things, the common kind of language that we hear is stand firm, resist, right? Stand firm, resist temptation, don't give into, whatever the case may be. When it comes to the area of sexual temptation, Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us to implement the Joseph strategy. And here's what he says run, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. All other sins, stand firm. Sexual sin, run. Get out of there. Flee. All right? And that's, that's the command. And that's what we too, as followers of Christ, need to embody as we face these things, as we're in an ever-compromising, ever-shifting culture. See, God hates sin. 
All right, we may live in an inclusive culture, but God is not inclusive to sin. He hates it. It's an an all-out assault on him and on his character. And so God hates sin, and he's kind of drawing the line here saying, stop it. This This isn't a Thyatira problem. This is a following Jesus problem in culture, okay? Like, we may look up and find ourselves in hotter or boiling water, and we have to decide, how are we going to respond to that? This isn't just something they're going through. It's something that we, too, as we face decisions in our lives, we have to figure out how we're going to navigate that. So what if you are in that spot? Like, what if you've given in to some sexual immorality? Maybe, what if you look up and you're around and you're like, man, I'm way too tolerant of sin, of areas in my life and the people I hang out with. Like, the water's getting hot. What do I do? All right? It's not, it's not just immorality. Like, it's all sin. Okay? What do I do? Well, embrace the fact that mercy is available. All right, we see it right here in verse 21. He says, I gave her, talking about Jezebel, remember, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. So we're reminded that even Jezebel, who's leading astray, who's, who's a leader in this church, which is another issue that like, they're kind of struggling through, she's telling people that, that it's okay for them to sin openly and in this way. Even mercy for her was extended. Right? God gave her the opportunity uh, to turn to him and embrace mercy. So um, a couple years ago, I was, uh, my first week on the job actually here at this church, um, I started on Sunday, and then Monday I got on a charter bus and drove off to summer camp, okay? So talk about starting slow. So there I am at summer camp, and we that week had rented a golf cart, okay? <clears throat> so if you have a student in the room, you can tell them to close their ears for this part. But we discovered that this golf cart went a little slow, and we're like, man, what the heck is going on with this thing? And so we opened up the seat and we discovered, and I say we, really like my friend Seth Horvath. Um, so he's the bad influence in this story. Um, he discovered that they had put a governor on the golf cart. All right, so a governor, if you don't know, is one of those things that like kind of throttles back the power of the engine to keep you from going too fast. And so he found a way uh, to tie a string on this, this governor and pull a lever um, while sitting on the seat that would then open it up and we could fly. And so, I don't recommend this necessarily, but we were out um, and we would see other people riding on golf carts like that worked at the camp or the speaker or whatever, and we'd challenge them to race. And so we'd start racing and we'd be like neck and neck because they had the same governor, and then we'd just be like, all right, open it up and pull that string and boom, off we go. And people are like, what are you doing, right? And like, I have no idea where God's just favor is on us apparently. So... um, Here's the reality. God, uh, repentance, all right, is the governor on God's golf cart of mercy. See, mercy is always available. Right? The golf cart still works, but when you pull that governor, like now, now it's working, okay? And the same is true. Mercy is always available. Repentance is what opens it up. It's what floods it on us. It's what allows us to turn into, lean into God's grace and into his mercy and as a student pastor, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've been um, asked this question. Like, hey, if mercy and grace are always there, then why should I stop sinning now? Like, what's the advantage of it in my life? Like, when I'm tired of this sin or when I'm old or whatever, then I'll turn. And then I'll accept that mercy. 
you know? And even as adults, like, I think we view mercy or we view repentance as a last-ditch effort. When I'm at the end of my rope, when I have nothing left to turn to, then I'll turn to God for his mercy through repentance. Well, here's the deal. Verse 21, Jezebel was offered and afforded an opportunity to repent, and it says that she does not want to turn away from immorality. That's what the verse says. God gave her time and gave her time and gave her time, but then eventually, all right, eventually he was sparing her from this, but then he took these consequences as a result of her sin, and he dumped them on her after time and time again of not repenting. Look at what it says in verse 22 and 23. He says, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. Some of your translations may use the word tribulation in place of suffering. I'll throw her on a bed of tribulation. And those who commit adultery with her, they'll suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from their evil deeds. And I'll strike her children dead. Look at those consequences. Like, he wants her to turn back to mercy. But if and when she doesn't, consequences come. That's the advantage. That's why we turn away from what we're doing. So if any of you guys have kids, this may make a little sense. I have two kids. I have a a three-month-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. And And so um, actually, like a couple weeks ago, we were up here or up there, and we uh, shared a video um, about what's going on with our youngest son. We just had him. Um, the process that we went through, all these testing and all these things, and he may have this really, really rare and incredibly fatal disease. Um, but here's what I want to say. Thank you guys for praying with us. About a week ago, we found out that he doesn't have it. He'll never have it, and he's free from it. And so we're out of the woods, and we're thank Yeah, thank you guys. Um, but I just, as an aside, I wanted to share that and just say thank you for that. Um, but on to my two-year-old, who's really the problem in this story. Um, my wife one day was like, looking across the table from him and said, Hudson, you need to eat your food, and if you don't eat your food, you're going to go to bed. And then she upped to Annie. Listen, if you get down from that chair one more time, actually, I think the words she said were, if your feet hit the ground, you're going to bed. And so if any of you know, if any of you have kids, you know exactly what happens. Here's what happened. I have a picture of it. Here's him dangling on the chair, right? Like, how far, like, how, how close to the edge can I get? And how often is that what we do too, right? As Christians, like, here's the line, and here's what God says, but like, how close can I get to it? That's what he's doing here. And eventually, you know the end of the story. He does test the waters. He does hit his feet on the ground, and she has to follow through and administer those consequences. And guys, the same is true with us. The same is true with, in this passage with Jezebel. The consequences are out there, and eventually, he's going to dump, dump them on us. And we have to choose when. So if you're here, and you've grown uh, tolerant to sin, or, or you, are, you have found yourself perhaps even in an immoral situation, then let me encourage you, if those consequences have not come yet, turn to God before they do. Okay? His grace and his mercy, it's, it's the governor on that thing, on that golf cart, all right? Turn to him. Um, he gave Jezebel an opportunity to do it. In fact, um, he was so kind. Romans 12, 4 says this, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? See, God's, God's kindness is what is supposed to lead us towards repentance. 
And so he's offering this to Jezebel. He was giving her the opportunity, but when she doesn't, the consequences are severe. Some translations, like I said, say, I will throw her into a great tribulation. And if you're reading this in the book of Revelation, you may think that has to do with like end times or is she going to be there, whatever. All we can really ascertain from this passage is that her punishment is unspecified, but it's pretty severe. And you know what else it says? Anyone in Thyatira who followed her. And anyone who follows her in that way. Right, the Bible is very clear on tolerance to sin, especially in the area of immorality. Anyone who follows her. What about her children? It says something about her children destroying them. What about her followers' children? Are they also uh, punished? Does this include anyone who doesn't repent of adultery, that their children are also? Like, here's, here's, what, we can, here's what we can kind of glean from this. What the Bible is saying is anyone here who uh, perpetuates her teaching, so like her spiritual offspring, so anyone who followed her in that, her teaching and practice, they'll be destroyed, they'll be punished, they'll be punished greatly, okay? But here's the deal, and here's what I want to drive back at, is even Jezebel, as wicked as she was, was still offered an opportunity to accept God's mercy and his grace. And the only way that she could do that was through the act of repentance. The same is true for you. The same is true for I. So if you're sitting here and you're like, man, I'm in a spot, I'm looking around, I'm in hot water. God's mercy, his grace is available to you. So what happens then if we accept that? What happens to those who are still standing firm, still standing strong, chosen to run? Hang on for dear life. All right? Hang on for dear life is what we see in verse 24 and 25. So Jesus kind of turns and pivots and says, I also have a message for the rest of you. For those of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching or this doctrine, these, these deep truths, as they call them, actually the depth of Satan, I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. What is it that they have? Their salvation in him, their belief in him. So how do we hold tightly if, if you've repented and, and you're at a spot where, where you're uh, following Jesus, how do you hold tightly in an ever-shifting culture where tolerance of sin is more and more accepted, where compromise is encouraged, uh, even asked for of you? How do you hold tightly? One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Hebrews 10, says this. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. How do we do it? We need to have people in our lives who are stirring us up. People who are not forsaking meeting together, but who are leaning into it. See, God's plan for you and I to hang on to dear life is to be connected to other believers. All right? We need to first find and repent and, and find a, our salvation in and through him. But then after that, in this crazy, shaky world, we need to find believers who can help draw us back to him. I'm in a, like a youth ministry coaching huddle, me and a few other guys. And so we actually met last week. Um, and he was kind of, my buddy Nate was kind of casting the vision for it. And he goes, I want us to get to a spot where we can say, hey, do you have any secrets in your life that you're carrying? And this be like a safe place for us to talk about it. And the same question to you. Do you have anybody in your life who has the permission and even the boldness to ask you, what are you carrying? What secrets do you have? What sin is unresolved in your life? 
And as we look at Hebrews 10, it says, hey, do that amongst believers. And so in this setting, if the person in front of you turned around and said, hey, what are some secrets that you have? My guess is you'd move to a different seat next week, okay? So it's, it's not in this environment. I get that. That means it's somewhere else. And so um, maybe that's in a life group setting or at least the relationship starts there. And then, like, you spin off with you and another person, probably same gender, to, to meet once a week or something like that. But the reality is this. Unless you have intentionality, uh, you're going to be swayed and tempted by the, the shifting culture that we live in. And so the question is, who in your life can ask you those hard questions? What, what, are, what incredible measures do you have in place to ensure that at the end you're going to be finishing strong? And you're going to be hanging on tightly as those believers here are commended for. And in fact, uh, if you read, uh, we don't have time to really get into it, but if you read the end, he says, those who are victorious, who obey me to the end, I'll give them authority over all the nations. They'll rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Like, he gives a reward in the end. So here's your options. You can rule with Jesus or be ruled by him. You just, it, the choice is yours. And so how do we hold on? Well, Hebrews 10, 23, two verses before the one I just finished. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Well, what, what are, what's that promise? Well, God has a, a ton of them throughout the Bible. Here's my favorite, one of them. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's mercies are new every morning, and they're available to you. And so maybe you find yourself here in this moment uh, succumbing to temptation, giving in to false teaching, uh, involved in immorality, or any other type of tolerating sin. And the reality is this, you can turn to God and experience his mercy through repentance. Maybe today you feel absolutely desperate for his mercy. And if that's you, then guess what? I have some good news for you. Will you bow your heads with me? God, this morning, <clears throat> as we look around this room, there may be some people in here who, who have yet to experience your, your goodness and your grace. If as I'm saying that, if you're sitting in this room and you've yet to make a decision to follow Jesus, maybe you've come to church uh, a long time or this is your first week. I don't know what the case may be. Um, but if for the first time as, as we're talking about this, you're like, you know what, I've never, I've never turned to him, ever. Right, here's what I want you to understand. God loves you, and he created you, and that's why he offers this mercy, because he loves you. But our sins have separated us from him, and no matter what we do, no matter any amount of good deeds, no matter any amount of church attendance, we can't buy back his favor. It's only through his son, who came, paid the price, died again, and rose again, so that we could have uh, eternal life with him. And anyone who puts their faith and trust in him has eternal life. And so if that's you this morning, if you would like to do that, let me just walk you through a simple prayer. You can say it in the quietness of your heart, in your seat. It goes something like this. God, I know that I've sinned. I know that you love me. Forgive me for those sins. I want to turn to you in repentance. I want to experience your mercy. Place my faith and trust in Christ, who I know died, rose again, took my place. I want him to be the Lord of my life. If you just prayed that prayer, and do us a favor. On that connection card that I talked about at the beginning of the service, would you just check that off for us? 
just let us know. We'd love to, to celebrate with you, uh, to give you some next steps in your faith. For the rest of you sitting in here, maybe you're like, you know, I've, I've prayed that prayer. I've done that. But maybe as we talk about this today, and you look around in your life, you realize, man, I'm tolerating some sin. Maybe for some of you, you're in some, some deep water. And today is the day for repentance. And so if that's you, would you just do something so bold as raise your hand so that I can see, so I can pray for you? We'd love to pray for you as a staff and what you're going through. You don't have to go through it alone, like Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 reminds us. So if that's you, just slip your hand up real quick. We want to pray for you. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you offer it to us. God, I pray that you help us have the boldness to repent, to come to you, to find get people in our lives to help push us towards you. God, I thank you for this reminder that we find here in Revelation 2, that compromise is dangerous, that, that tolerating sin is dangerous, but God, I pray that you help us not give in to that, but Lord, that you help us uh, hold on to you and hold on to each other so that we can hold on to the end. God, for anyone who raised their hand, I pray uh, that you help them find that community, find that person that they can share with, that they can be open with, that they can uh, today plant a stake in the ground and say, no more today, I'm moving forward and being different. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the reminder and truth that we can find in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for being here today.